You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Today, I want you to open your Bible to, wait for it, the table of contents. Open to the table of contents. We're going to need a road map. As you're finding your way there, I just want to give you the big idea of what's going on. Very special day here at Harvest. We are kicking off a brand new series that will take us all the way to the days when it's warm. Uh, through All the way through winter, all the way through spring. And we are starting this series. It is called Onward. It is a verse-by-verse march through the 24 chapters of the book of Joshua, the sixth book in our Bible, and we have entitled it Onward, Don't Stop Now. And we've even got some visual effects to help you with what we're going for in the book of Joshua. Here's the big idea. I'm going to give you the big idea right at the beginning. If you condensed everything the book of Joshua had to say to us in 2015, I believe it would be this statement. The Christian life, the direction of the Christian life is... Onward. That's what we're going to learn from the book of Joshua. We've got a lot to say about that, but that's where we're going. And it's a good time every time we open up a new series to remind you of some foundational principles that we believe here at Harvest Bible Chapel, particularly related to this book that we hold in our hands, our Bibles. Around here, we believe in the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, and the sufficiency of the Scripture. The book we hold in our hands is a book written by God. The reason we know that is because of this verse in 2 Timothy... See what it did there? If you have no idea what's going on right now, just ask later. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read this about our Bibles. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You got some good work you want to get done? Then you need to be equipped with the Word of God. So around here, what we believe about this book is that a God who exists outside of time and space has spoken into our time and space and given us a self-disclosure of who He is of His will and His ways for us. And so when we come to the Scripture, we say this. We give the Bible the right to determine what we believe and how we are to behave. That is our commitment to the authority of Scripture in our lives. Now, I realize that for some of you, you're not quite there yet. Maybe you're curious. Maybe somebody drug you to church here this morning, and you're like, come on, that book was written by a bunch of men. Well, that's the reason we open it up, and as we read God's Word, it does something in our hearts that no other words of men can do. And so we're here to look at what God has to say to us in a particular place over the next 17 weeks in a book called Joshua. And I've had you open up to the table of contents, and I want you to notice, do you see there's two sections in your Bible? It's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. The book of Joshua is found in the Old Testament. But before we read something in the Old Testament, there is a verse in the New Testament that acts as a key to insert into the lock of Joshua that will unlock the lock. It is this verse found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Why do we study the Old Testament books and stories and history that was written to ancient Israel thousands of years ago? Because of this verse. The writer of Hebrews says, Now these things, these things that were written so long ago, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So the writer of Hebrew understood the value of the Old Testament. When we study the Old Testament, and even this book of Joshua, we're not studying it for information. There's a lot of history, there's a lot of geography in this book. We're going to look at some of that. But understand, what we are looking for is not information. What we are looking for is instruction. 
It was written down for us. Not everything that happened thousands of years ago was written down. But God, in His sovereignty, allowed some things to be written down for our instruction in 2015. That's why we're going to dive into this book. So when we dive into Joshua, we're looking for instruction on how to live in right relationship with God. We're looking for instruction on how to please God. We're looking for instruction on how to live the life God intended me to live in the place that He intended me to live it and have everything that He has for me available. How do I get access to all that God wants for me to live? That's what we're going to learn in the book of Joshua. Now, my table of contents, when I open my Bible... I need a little cheat sheet. I went to public school, so I need a little help. And I've just kind of scribbled around in the Old Testament because I need to know kind of what I should expect when I open up to certain parts of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible is known as the law. The theological term or the Hebrew term is called the Torah. And they were, those five books were written by the man named Moses. Now, Joshua is the sixth book, and Joshua was not written by Moses. Do you know why? Because Moses was dead and... Moses was not a good writer when he was dead, so he didn't get around to the book of Joshua. And Joshua picks up right after the death of Moses. And so I, this morning I was really planning on opening up to Joshua 1 and starting our journey through this book, but I realized there is so much backstory that we've got to understand about the first five books that we're not going to understand the first thing about Joshua until we look at the backstory. So indulge me a little bit. I need to take a little time to do a quick Old Testament survey through the first five books of the Bible. All right? Now, the first verse of the Bible goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And pretty soon we find out that he created a man named Adam. And then he created a woman, an upgrade, man 2.0, woman. And, and they, they were in covenant relationship, one man, one woman, one lifetime. For all for the glory of God, and yet they blew it. They disobeyed God. They wanted to be God. And so they, the first five chapters there of our Bible is this tragic story about how paradise was lost. And then we get to chapter 6 of Genesis, and we find that God moves onward to another guy named Noah. And Noah was a righteous man, and then for about six chapters in the book, there's this tragic story about how there was only evil on the earth continually, and God saved Noah and his family. They get out of the ark, and we open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. That's where I want you to go right now. And I want you to turn with me, because I want you to mark it up and see where we're going. What you're going to see as we go through these, this quick survey is everything is onward. The direction of the Christian life is onward. And so God moves onward past Adam. He moves onward to Noah. He moves onward to this guy in Genesis chapter 12. And this is what God says to this guy named Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, which in and of itself is remarkable. Don't move too, pat, too fast past the understanding that we have a God who speaks, he communicates, he reveals himself to unworthy sinners like you and me and a guy named Abram. And God steps in redemptively and graciously and tells Abram how we're going to move onward. The Lord said to Abram, go. Do you detect any forward movement in that statement? Go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, all the things that were familiar to him. Go to the land that I will show you. Just underline that word land there. You're going to see it's a recurring theme as we lead up to Joshua and we get into Joshua. It's very important that you understand something about the land. This was the first promise that God made about this particular Land, And we're going to find out it's called the, we refer to it as the promised land. We're going to find out later it's the land of promised rest. We're going to see that as well. But it's this reference to land. And notice, Abraham was probably wondering like, Lord, what address do I punch into the GPS to actually get there? You weren't real specific. It's a land that I will show you. He didn't even know where exactly he was going. But he needed to obey the first command, go onward. I've got something 
next for you. It goes on. And I will make you a great nation. How do you do that, by the way? You have babies. And, and this is the story that leads us all through Genesis about the family and the legacy of Abraham. And it says, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Isn't that a great principle? We are blessed to be a blessing. We're not just blessed to enjoy and consume the blessing of God. We're blessed to be a blessing. And that's what God wanted to do in Abraham's life, to move him onward so that he could be blessed and he could be a blessing. And God wants to do the same thing. So we see the story of Genesis, the story of of, uh, Abraham's family. It plays itself out through the 50 chapters of our first book in the Bible. But we get to the very end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and this is what happens. This great nation that had been grown from Abraham's legacy falls into and under attack by another nation. That nation was Egypt. Didn't know God, worshipped foreign and false gods, misdirected worship in Egypt. And Egypt enslaves the family of God known as Israel. That's how the book of Genesis ends. And so we move onward into the second book of the Bible, and we're introduced to a new hero, and his name is Moses. And God comes and speaks to Moses. In Genesis, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, this is what God says, I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, important, not ultimate. What is ultimate is God. It's almost as if God is saying, next, next, next. God can use anyone, but he doesn't need anyone. It is all about God and his plan. He's moving onward through succeeding generations. And Moses, in response to what God had said, did something very wise. When you are confronted with a holy God, he hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. It's a picture of, an, of a humble heart that worships, understanding God is holy. I am not. I am in danger of being incinerated right now if it was not for the grace of God to shield me from his holiness. And so Moses had right relationship with God. It goes on and says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know they're suffering. Interestingly, the principle here is God hears our prayers. No matter what you are enslaved by, no matter what is causing your suffering, no matter matter how bad your boss, God hears our suffering. And in response, this is what God does. He says, I have come down. Aren't you grateful for a God who would come down to where we are in our captivity, in our slavery, in our sufferings? I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. There is the land again. And he describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey and Krispy Kreme donuts, and sorry, I editorialized there a little bit, but that's, well, you want to get me somewhere, just tell me there's some Krispy Kreme donuts, and I, I'm motivated to be there. And that was, that was, he was holding out to them something that was the ultimate pleasure, the place where God wanted to provide and to protect them in this place, but they were going to need to go onward from where they were to where God had promised they should be. So we go through the book of Exodus, And God does deliver them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they land in the wilderness. What should have been a few weeks' journey to this promised land turned into a 40-year ordeal. You know why? Because of this. They started grumbling, started complaining, started criticizing the leader. And God said, okay, all right, I'm putting you in timeout. For a whole generation. Not one of these men, Deuteronomy chapter 1 says, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb. We're going to learn about Caleb a little later in the book of Joshua. 
But Caleb was a guy who had a whole heart for God. It says, he will see it, and to him and to his children, I will give this land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. He goes on. Moses is speaking, and he's telling the people he's not going to get to go to the land either. Even with me, even with Moses, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. So Moses received the promise, but he didn't receive the land. The generation of Israel received the promise, but they didn't receive the land. They're waiting. And God was saying, you know what? Nobody of this generation under 40 years old is going to get to see the land. Your kids are going to get it, but you're not going to get it. You forfeited it. You forfeited it because of your disobedience. And so there's one other guy that's going to get to see the land. And we are introduced to him in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 38, Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun. Can you imagine being little Joshua, talking to your friends, and they're talking about their dads, and somebody says, Joshua, what's your dad's name? And he said, I'm the son of Nun. Well, that's so unfortunate you don't have a father. No, no, his name is Nun. You're not the son of Nun. Well, his name is, and he had to spell it out. Anyway, it was very confusing back in the day. So anyway, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. And so he gives Moses a charge to multiply leadership and says this, encourage him. He's going to need it. Encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. By the way, next week's message is all about how Moses encouraged uh, Joshua and multiplied leadership so that the next generation would have a great leader. So we're introduced to this guy named Joshua. And we finally get in our Bibles to the book of Joshua. Please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible. And we're introduced to uh, Joshua as this great leader. And so let me give you a little um, idea of what they're facing. We finally get onward to Joshua. Here's a crude map. I want you to imagine yourself as, as one of these people about to go into the land. Maybe you were born in Egypt. Your mom and your dad took you over the Red Sea and you wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. And you're one of this next generation that's actually going to get to go over into the promised land. And you start noticing that that generation above you, they start dying of old age and other things and, and you start to get excited. It's like... You know, God said we couldn't go in until that generation was gone. And so there's this last remaining guy. And you're going by to check on him. Like, how you feeling today? Feel great. Go by a couple of weeks later. Got a little cough. Really? We're almost there. And so what's happening is we come to the first book, the first chapter of the book of Joshua. And this was the journey that they had taken. They had come through the Red Sea. And they'd come through the wilderness finally, and they are standing as the next generation of God's people, recipients of the promised land. They're standing on the east side of the promised land, about to cross over that very accurate picture of the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the boundary, and they were about to step over. They were going to have to go over into the Jordan River. And the entire nation is standing there, and that is the way... The book of Joshua begins. Now, that's the end of the history. That's the end of the geography. If you think I told you all of that so that you could become a Bible fathead and get some information in your head, you missed the point. We're looking not for information. We are looking for instruction. Because what we need to understand is that Joshua is not just about ancient Israel Joshua is about me, and it's about you. And the reason we know that is because of a commentary that the writer of Hebrews gives us on the book of Joshua. I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I want to introduce it to you. We're going to look at it more as we go through the series. I want you to see this from Hebrews. If you've got your Bible, open it to Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Do you see what this verse says? The promise still stands. There was a promise of land that was given to ancient Israel, but there is a promise that still stands for a place that God wants us today in 2015 to enter. Now, when I say place, I am not talking about a geographical location on the map. It's not so much about a place of rest. It is about a person where we find rest. His name is Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the Old Testament Hebrew name that was translated into the term Joshua and the New Testament Greek name that's translated into the word Jesus, same name. And so as we read the book of Joshua, what we are looking for is how you and I can enter into this place of promise, this place of relief, this place of grace, this place of rest where our souls find satisfaction, where everything else leaves us restless. Are you restless this morning? After the end of the nine o'clock service, a senior from Notre Dame came up and just said, would you pray for me? My heart is so anxious. And I said, well, what's going on in your life? Well, first of all, she's a senior at Notre Dame. All right, that's enough. And there's this relationship that might be happening. I'm like, okay, I can understand why you, and you know, what's going to happen after you graduate? I don't quite know. All right, there's some, there's some things that would cause restlessness. Is there anybody else around here who's not a senior at Notre Dame that are facing some things that are causing some restlessness in your soul? Do you understand that the book of Joshua is for you to go onward into a place of rest? And it is only in Jesus Christ that has done all of the work, that has fulfilled all of the promise, where we can find the place where God meets us at the point of our restlessness. And in, in spite of all of the circumstances, we can rest knowing God is fully in charge. The calm assurance that God has this. And that all of my pleasure, all of my enjoyment, all of my satisfaction will only be found in him. Not in a place, but in a person. The writer of Hebrews, look down at verse 8, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 8. I want you to see it really quick. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, it's not about a place, it's about a person. Verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see what this is saying? It's incredible. Strive to rest. Work really hard. Exhaust yourself to find the place of rest. So there's a sense in which Jesus has already provided the rest God has promised. There's also a sense in which we have not yet and never quite will until we are with Jesus in his kingdom experience the totality of all the rest God wants to give us. But in this day, remember, this is about me. There is a rest. And, and here's what he's saying. If you're restless, in some sense, somewhere in your soul, it is because of the same sort of disobedience that ancient Israel had that kept them out of the promised land. And so he says, be careful. Don't let Sinful disobedience keep you from the place God wants you to dwell. 
And so that is all just an introduction to help you understand. When we're talking about land, we're not talking about dirt. We're not talking about somewhere in the Middle East over there. We're talking about a place God wants us to live and to enjoy and to abide even in 2015. So I want to spend the rest of the time here applying all that truth because I was thinking about you and me this week as I'm putting this message together. I'm like, who cares about Joshua? Who should care? Who needs the message of Joshua? Who in our church needs to go onward from where they are to where God wants them to be. And so I thought about some guys. And I, I want you to understand, I want you to grasp what I mean every time I say the direction of the Christian life is, what is it? Onward. Did, did you get that? The direction of the Christian life is? Onward. So here's what I mean by onward. And I want to ask you, do you have an onward orientation? Because some of you do not. And you need to get it before we leave church today. So here's what I mean. Onward is an attitude that continually propels forward movement and resists stagnation. So who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about this guy. Now, when I say I'm thinking about a guy, I, I'm not seeing a face. I'm not thinking of a name. I'm talking about a collection of people, hypothetical people. Could be a guy, could be a girl, definitely some teenagers. And uh, definitely some people in my family. And at times, definitely me. So I'm, thinking of, I'm just thinking of this guy, and you may be the guy. Are, are you the guy that thinks that getting saved, being converted to Christ, becoming a Christian is the finish line? Because if it is, you may have stepped over into the promised land of forgiveness and grace and you are now in the family of God and yet you stopped the day after you got saved. If that's you, um, the direction of the Christian life is onward. You need some forward movement. You need to take the next step because God not only wants to justify you at a point in your life, God wants to begin a process of sanctification the rest of your life. And every day is an opportunity to get up and get going and get moving and enjoy the ride so that you finish the day in a better place than you were when you woke up. I took my family to Cedar Point this summer. How many of you have been to Cedar Point? Do you know? Do you know about it? Do you know about the roller coasters? Okay, so they have all kinds of different roller coasters. And they have the old traditional roller coasters where, you know, you get on, you strap yourself in, and they send you out of the gate and around the first corner, and then you start the climb, right? And there's that awful, wicked sound. And you think, is this ever going to end? And then somewhere in the back of your mind is like, I'm hoping that keeps going. Because if that ever stops, I'm thinking I'm going really fast in the opposite direction, right? So I, I just thought about that sound as I was thinking about this guy. Your Christian life could, should be... But then I thought about, you know, at some point there's some people... You crested the hill and you rode the momentum of that first hill... Maybe you went to youth camp and you got all fired up and, and, and you know, maybe you went to a Christian concert or maybe you went to church last weekend and the worship was so awesome and you're just like, oh man, God is doing so much in my life. God really is at work. And you crested the hill and you flew around the corner and you flipped upside down like, this is so exciting. I got to get other people you know, to wait two hours in the line to get on the ride to do that. I mean, this is so great. But then at some point, what happens in the roller coaster? You come sliding to a stop back where you started and you get off the ride. Some of you have done that. And what you don't realize is on the ride, the ride only lasts like 96 seconds, even though you waited in line for two hours to get on it. And some of you had a really good first 96 seconds of your Christian life. But you stopped. And the message for you today is this. It is time for you to get moving onward again. And, and you need to take your next step. So when we talk about onward, we're talking about an attitude. We're also talking about a disposition. Onward is a disposition to move beyond the territory I now occupy into the territory God has promised. 
You know, those ancient Israels, Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, it was so much better in the wilderness than it was in slavery under Egypt. Some of them may have thought, man, this is an upgrade. This is, this is really cool. We don't have taskmasters. We don't have to make bricks anymore. This is great. Can't we just kind of live in the wilderness? And that's what contributed to them never seeing the land God wanted them to occupy. And I'm thinking of this guy... I'm thinking of this guy who's gotten really comfortable living in a place that's an upgrade from where you were, but it is not the place of promise where God wants you to go. And I'm thinking about people that have been Christians for years. And you've, if you showed me your Bible this morning, it's all marked up and it looks like a rainbow and you've got tear stains and blood stains on it. You've studied it so much and you've packed your head full of Bible knowledge and you've been to Bible conferences and you've been to Christian concerts and your books, bookshelves are lined with journals and you've got so much truth. And, and here's you. You know right and by comparison you do right but you know you are not right. And yet you're stuck, you're stopped in your onward progress into the land that God wants you to go. Andrea and I had a wonderful time this weekend. Um, we've been married 21 years. We got away to Florida this weekend. I know, groan, everybody groan, okay. So, so we got away and... And we, we actually had conversations for three days that weren't with a kid or about a kid. That, it had been weeks since that had happened. And we you know what? We found out we still love each other. And we signed up for another 40 years. We're going the distance. We're going to the finish line. And we had a wonderful time. There, there's something you need to know that rarely happens in our marriage. Okay? Confession time for the pastor. We've been married 21 years. It, there's a conversation that happens almost weekly. So whenever we go somewhere together, I typically drive. I like to drive. Andrea likes me to drive. So, so we, I get in the driver's seat and we take off. And inevitably, we will come to a stoplight. And so obediently, I stop. And my mind will get a little distracted sometimes. And I'll be thinking, is there a sermon illustration here I could use? You know, Or what was that Bible text I'm supposed to read? Or what was that conversation I had with that kid? And did, what was that last text? And... and at the stoplight, I'll kind of get caught up, but Andrea has a very high sensitivity to the color green. <laughs> and if there is any more than 0.75 seconds elapsed between the time the light turns green and the time my foot moves from the brake to the accelerator, I am going to hear about it. <laughs> and the conversation is very sweet, but it just simply goes like this. Are you going to go? <laughs> and, you know, I've been married 21 years. Early in the marriage, that would start a fight, okay? And I, I would just look at Andrew like, honey, I got my license when I was 16. I got married when I was 27. That means for 11 years, I figured out how to get out of the intersection, okay? I am not still sitting at the intersection at a red light. Somehow, I got prompted at some point. It's, it might have been a horn by the guy in the back, but I, can, I don't need the prompting, okay? We'll get you. This woman does not want to sit still long. I mean, the only time she sits still is about an hour in the morning when she's meeting with Jesus, and we do not approach the Holy Hill at that point. That's her time. The rest of the day, she is moving, flying around, and it's amazing. So she doesn't want to sit still. And I just... I thought of that when I was thinking of you. Are you going to get going? Are you going to go? The light is green. The intersection is clear. God has created a, a lane for you to safely travel in to get you to a better place than where you are. You don't have to stay where you are. No matter where you are, God always has something else for you to reach Onward to grasp. Onward is a disposition. Onward is also an orientation. Onward is an orientation toward God that seeks to close the distance between where I am and where God wants me to live. And, and I'm thinking of this guy. You, you know how I'm thinking? I'm, I'm thinking of this guy who is living in the desert of sin. 
Maybe you're like those ancient Israelites. You're a grumbler. You're a complainer. You're discontent. You're remembering how good it was before the Lord saved you and how much fun and partying and that. You're like, man, I just wish I could go back and be with those people because walking with Jesus is a little hard these days. And I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to go any further. I don't want to go any further onward in my walk with God. And maybe God's word for you today is he's calling you onward out of sin into a life of obedience. He's calling you out of anger into a life onward to forgiveness. He's calling you out of your anxiety onward into a place of rest. He's calling you out of a life that is self-absorbed onward into a life that is servant-hearted. Thinking of that guy, you're, you're stuck. You're living addicted to sin. Yesterday, I got the strangest text from my 19-year-old daughter, Brooke. I want to read it to you because she's not here. You know the autocorrect thing on your, your texting? That will mess you up. This, was, this is what Brooke said. Now, Brooke, Brooke's 19 years old. She's a freshman at Cedarville University, a Christian college, okay? So, you know, you've heard these stories about what freshmen do when they get to their college, first time out of the house. And so I get this text from Brooke, and this is what it says. And it's, it's a group text. She's sending it to Andrea and me at the same time. This is what it says. You guys might already do this, but you should buy your keg at Sam's Club. Because they come in big bulk. My sweet, precious daughter. I'm like, I send you a Christian school and... What? So Andrea texts back and she says... Buy your what from Sam's? <laughs> Brooke texts back and she says, Ha ha, yeah, because you can buy a ton and it's not that expensive. <laughs> she texts again. I guess with me gone from the house, though, you probably don't drink all that much. <laughs> I'm like... I didn't know you were drinking when you were at the house. What? <laughs> so Andrea texts back and she's deciphering what is going on. Andrea texts back and she says, K-cups, right? You earlier said in your text, kegs. So Brooke texts back, ha 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 Just for the record, so the word doesn't get out in the community, the pastor's family uh, has no use for kegs at the house, okay? But, but I was thinking of this guy in our church that does. And whether it is alcohol or sex or stuff, you have turned to that and it's promised to give you rest and yet you wake up the next morning and you're restless again. And you're stuck. And God's word for you today is you need to close the distance between where you're living and where God wants you to live. You need to cross over out of the addiction, out of the pain and out of the restlessness into the place of rest. Onward is an orientation, but onward is also a direction. Onward is a direction that faces forward no matter how long I've wandered or how far I've already come. So I'm thinking of two guys this time. And I'm thinking about somebody that really has 
such distance in their relationship with God. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not even quite sure why you're here. And somebody drug you here. And it's like, I just this is so weird for me. And you're talking about a Bible that God wrote. And, and you're talking about this land in ancient Israel. And like, what is all of that? And even if I wanted to be right with God, and even if I wanted to do things His way, I've gone so far and wandered for so long. It just seems like such work to get back to. You're that guy. God's message for you today is, The place of rest is not out of reach. It's a promised land that Jesus wants to provide. All it takes is the next step of faith for you to get moving onward. And I'm thinking about the guy that's opposite of that guy. And you know who that guy is? That guy is me. Because, I don't know about you, we're six years into this journey of church planting and things are going quite well. And we've come such a long way. How many of you were with me setting up chairs at the North Point Elementary School praying that God would send somebody to sit in the chair? And how many of you are still around today and you're thinking, I wonder if I'm going to find a seat at church today? Because we've come such a long way and the temptation would be to think, we don't need to go any further. Listen. The Christian, the church, or the marriage that stops moving onward starts dying. I, I, I talk to pastors in churches almost weekly, and they're dying, not because there's heresy, not because of a lack of leadership, but they're dying because they have no vision to move onward into what's next for them. May that never be Harvest Bible Chapel. God has more. God has other places. God has other ministries. And God has a place for you to step into the leadership, to step into the vision that God has put on our hearts. It's a direction that faces forward. No matter how, long, how far or how long I've wandered, or how far I've already come. Or onward is a direction. But onward is also a battle cry. It's a battle cry of those who refuse to accept spiritual defeat no matter how fearsome the enemies. So this is what we're going to learn about this promised land. There were giants in there. And uh, the people were afraid to go in there because they thought, they're just going to kill us. Joshua is a violent book about warfare and and in order to cross over by faith they were immediately going to be engaged in battle with big strong ugly giants and the spiritual life is a spiritual battle stepping over into the land God has for you means You're going to have to fight. And I'm thinking of the guy that was KO'd in his last spiritual battle. And he does not want to get off the mat. And he doesn't want to get back in the ring. And he doesn't want to fight anymore because he fears the enemies in front of him. Um, In case you haven't heard... um, the culture is becoming more hostile toward people who identify themselves as Christians. And some of you are thinking, you know what? I don't want the hassle. I I don't want the fight. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be fired. I don't want to be sued. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to lose friends. I don't want to lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's not worth it to me, so I am going to stay right here in my little safe zone here in the wilderness, and I'm not going to step over into all those radical, crazy people that are going to go in there and charge and, and get the place of rest. Because you're afraid of the enemy. Back in the 80s, you know, kind of the Christian evangelical world was kind of categorized by this phrase, the moral majority. I don't know if you look around, you kind of size up the political candidates, and you're like, I'm not quite seeing anybody waving the flag for me. I'm not even quite sure anybody cares. As a matter of fact, they may be coming for me. We may have to become an underground church 
if we're going to be faithful to the Lord. Because the enemies of God are more hostile, bigger, stronger, more numerous, and uglier than they have ever been. Russell Moore says this, We are no longer a moral majority. We are now a prophetic minority which means we continue to speak up, we continue to engage the culture, understanding that our ways are not popular and we can no longer rely on favorable political winds to keep us moving. Now we're swimming upstream, but we will continue to move onward. Andrea and I have this conversation that happens almost weekly. As I am driving, and she is in the passenger seat, Andrea has a high sensitivity to red brake lights that are in front of us while I'm driving. And so we were down in Florida this past week, and it was time to drive the rental car back to the airport, get back on the plane, so I'm driving, Andrea's in the passenger seat, she's on the phone counseling our alcoholic daughter, and, um, <laughs> and all of a sudden I see Andrea do what she does quite well, she's actually mastered the technique, she takes her right leg and flies it up and lands it on the dashboard, which is a signal to me that the SUV in front of us is stopping in our lane. Now, the reason why I didn't immediately stop is because I was trying to be a servant-hearted husband and turn the radio down so that she could speak to our alcoholic daughter. And, you know, it's a rental, so you're trying to figure out which knob does that. And, you're trying to, and so it took me like an extra two seconds to find the knob. And it was those two seconds in which the car in front of us decided to stop. And so, fortunately, when her leg went up and hit the dashboard, I, it's a trigger to me that my leg should go up and find the brake on my side. And so I did that, and we stopped just a few inches before we collided with the SUV. And I've often told her, like, honey, what if I actually hit the car and the airbag explodes? Your foot is going through your face. You know, it's just not, it's not a good technique. But anyway, it works for her. So... But I was thinking of this guy, and you, you slammed on your brakes a long time ago because you saw danger in front of you, and you've never taken your foot off the brake and found the accelerator again and said, you know what, it's time to get moving forward. God has more for me, and it is time to move. God is calling us forward. Onward is a battle cry, and here's the last thing. Onward is a spirit-directed prompting when facing opposition to remember God's promise and rely upon God's grace. No matter what the enemy, no matter what the opposition, Jesus has already won the fight. He has already defeated the enemy. The danger has already been subdued. And so... We fight from a position of victory, and we fight not in our own strength, but we fight remembering the battle belongs to the Lord. And we're going to see that lesson played out in the book of Joshua. Can I ask you as we close, are you moving onward? Or have you gotten stuck in the wilderness? It's time to remember the direction of the Christian life is onward. Let me ask us all to bow our heads. Before you check out of here, would you just spend a moment there asking God to put within your heart a desire to move onward. My prayer is that you've heard that spirit-directed whisper in your heart. Like I heard it this week. Hey, that guy he was talking about, that guy's you. And it's time to get off the sidelines. It's time to get out of the wilderness. It's time for you to enter into the place of promised rest. You may not even know at this point what that would look like. 
He may be like Abraham. God said go, but he didn't quite tell him where he was going. Would you just, in response to God's prompting, say, Lord, you're right. I've had my foot on the brake for way too long. It's time to get going. I hear you. I trust you. I'm available. Let me just say a word to some of you. You may be the curious one. You're here and you don't know why. And Church, Bible, Jesus, those are all new terms to you. The first step of moving onward for you is not to read more Bible. It's not to give money. It's not to straighten up your messed up life. The first step of moving onward is a simple act of faith to say, God, I believe that what Jesus Christ did on that cross was for me. I believe that you died in my place as a substitute for my sin. I don't want to live anymore in my own strength trying to be good. I want to trust the work of Christ to get me where you want me. If that's you, at the end of our service, we're always here. The pastors and elders of our church would love to receive you and welcome you and pray with you. If you're carrying a burden here today, you may not quite know where God wants you to move. Would you let us pray for you at the end of the service? Let me pray for you right now. Lord, I do pray for my friends, and I pray for all of these guys that are stuck, not moving. I pray that you'd get them over Jordan. And God, I pray for uh, those that may be addicted to a substance. And God, would you give them the promise that your power is strong enough to break that addiction. God, would you move those that have thought they have already come so far would you show them the unfinished business in their life and how far you want to take us how much influence you want us to have and who you want us to take with us to the place of your promise thank you for how far you've brought us and God we just want to say we're available for whatever's next we pray in Jesus name Amen